just want to echo what Dave said at the beginning of the service. We had a brilliant last two days here in church with the Global Leadership uh, Summit, the GLS. What a team we have here, the volunteers and staff team. It was amazing to work together and just to see what happens when you bring lots of gifts together. It's fantastic. After yesterday's uh, G- GLS, I, I had to go off with another great team, the Soul Food team, and we just made sandwiches because the church was, it was too much to put on a cooked meal yesterday uh, for everyone. So we made some sandwiches. We did cancel Soul Food, but we know that every time we cancel it, people still turn up. So we don't want them to turn up and not have any food. So we made some sandwiches and there was about uh, 20 or 30 people uh, turned up uh, yesterday we had a we had a rugby scrum outside number 40 and it was brilliant and we had one gentleman was just passing he goes what's going on here and I said oh look we, we just do this every week we just uh, do food and things we normally have a hot meal in church and he just goes that's absolutely brilliant I'm so glad I asked you and it's really great to see this is going on in Edinburgh so it is great it's wonderful to be able to be part of that and just I want to echo what Dave said at the beginning of the service if if you are able to give uh, and take one of the soul food Christmas bags away with you. It will be really appreciated, and I hope you can do that. Just a little correction about the cost. I hate correcting our rector, our canon rector of all people. He's so brilliant. But uh, it would be really good if you could just give us cash instead of going to get a Costa card, because we reckon we can get a deal from Costa. So uh, if that makes sense, that, that would be good. So we might be able to double the value. It depends on my negotiating techniques, but I've been watching The Apprentice, and I, and I, I think I can do it. Anyway, okay, I've got a seven-year-old at home called Jonah, and he is amazing in every single way. And one of the things uh, we do together is we will go to the cinema. I went last week to cinema to watch The Nativity, and... Um, you know, that was, it, it had a North Star review, I, I read, and uh, that's generous. But anyway, <laughs> one, of the, one of the things we did once is we, we went to a 3D film. Don't normally like to go to 3D. I'm a bit old school. 2D is my, is my genre. But obviously, seven-year-olds love 3D, so being a good dad and having a bit more cash than normal, took him to, took him to the, the 3D thing. And um, we were sitting there in the cinema. And I don't mind taking Jonas to the cinema because it means I can have a good, good sleep. I don't know any of any grown-ups here go. But I, I don't find I emotionally connect, really, with Disney anymore. I, it, it, you might be absolutely horrified by this. But I, I, I probably sleep for about an hour and 20 minutes of most, most films. But this 3D film, I've, I could feel the sleep coming on. There was no engagement happening. Uh, so I, I just took the glasses off and thought, I'm just going to just rest my eyes for a bit and, and uh, I don't know if you've ever done this if we've gone to sleep and it was a good sleep I, I think I had a good dream and everything and I woke up and have you ever, be, have you ever looked at a 3D film without your 3D glasses on it, it is terrible. Let me put it. It's not very clear. You could you could see you could see basically the characters, but I was a bit shocked. You know, coming from a dreamlike state into that, I was thinking, what on earth has happened to the cinema since I, I've been gone? But but then I remembered it's a 3D thing. But but it's re- You can see the figures, but they're not quite clear, or they're a bit overlapped, and it's 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 not a good experience. Let me put it put it that way, uh, and, and things like that. So you can hear everything, you can, but you can't see quite uh, clearly it's as if something is missing and you know something when we're reading uh, the bible if we don't read it in the right way something is missing a detail we need to know to help us understand the bible 
is necessary. And that detail is especially needed when we look at the New Testament, because otherwise it will be like a 3D cinema experience with no glasses. It will be a bit out of focus. And really, that detail is right in the centre of our passage this morning. If we don't have this detail, this passage makes no sense. And with this detail, this passage becomes dynamite. And the detail in the passage is that detail of persecution. And that detail, as Christians in the 21st century, is vital for us to deal with. Because a simple truth of the matter is, the New Testament, so the book of John, which we're looking at today, is a New Testament book. Simple truth of the matter is that the New Testament was written to people dealing with persecution. And if we miss that fact, that the New Testament was written to these people, and that was the community in which they were living in, where persecution was a reality. If you follow Jesus, it was tough back then. We miss a vital point. When I finally discovered this fact, which was probably eight, nine years ago, it absolutely transformed my Bible reading. And most especially, it transformed how I engage with God. Because all of a sudden, as I read the New Testament, it became a much more pastoral book. It was, it was challenging. It was prophetic in the way I, I approached life. Every page of the New Testament, I discovered this empathetic God whose catchphrase, I think, was about keep going despite everything keep going, don't give up now, but keep moving, move forward, don't be afraid. It was as if Jesus was whispering his encouragement into the darkest and most difficult moments of my life. As I read the New Testament, it moved away from judgment into empowerment. There was more vitality in my heart, and as if I'd been asked to step outside sort of the filters I bring to reading uh, the New Testament, my middle-class, male, Western, rich perspective. It was asking me to say, those filters actually need to be changed. Put on this filter of persecution, and then you'll discover life is so much bigger, so much more complex, and so much more colourful. It's so helpful to know that this book, the New Testament, was written into a community which at any moment could be in trouble. It was written to a community where life was hard and it wasn't fair. It was written to a community where the very idea of justice was an impossible dream. Violence and difficulty was all around, if you're a Christian. It was written to, to a community where poverty was the norm and it was the reality. The very first Christians were slaves. They were bottom of the heap. So not only were they economically crushed, they were also crushed because of their faith. And yet, despite all these difficulties, you see followers of Jesus back then in all the pain and hardship which made up their life, working it out. You see them going for it. You see them choosing to be part of the Jesus story and ultimately transforming the world. That's why reading the New Testament in lovely, safe, and yet it must be said quite cold, Scotland, where we're free to talk about our faith 
whenever we want to, if we, if we want to. And whenever we can discuss things, we can imagine things quite freely about faith. Where the worst thing which probably can happen to us if we are a Christian is we might be picked on a bit or people might laugh at us. It's why reading the New Testament in this place, knowing this fact about persecution, is so important. One of the things I think which has happened in our culture is that we got so caught up in the details, we've forgotten the big picture of the New Testament. So the church has got hung up on the wrong things. We've forgotten what it really is about. So putting persecution into your mind as you read the gospel message transforms how we approach it. Thing is, might be okay here in Scotland. We can live relatively freely and easily, but the reality is still for 200 million people, according to Open Doors, a charity which deals with the persecuted church, 200 million Christians are living with the reality of persecution right now as I speak across the world. And you only need to read the news and, and uh, see what's going on, on on the news watching the telly where you see what's happening in Iraq and Christian communities being wiped out. In Syria, the same is happening. In Egypt, it's really hard to be a Christian. You just need to look at what's happening in Nigeria and North Korea. You see this persecution. It's just going on and it's going on. It's brilliant at the GLS uh, conference uh, to see that the collection we were taken to enable this ministry to go wider afield was being taken so it could be done this conference in countries which are persecuted they couldn't even mention the names of the countries because it would be too dangerous to mention those names but we're so so it's really tough in some places to be a christian I was interested to read a training manual uh, written this week by an American mission agency called Asian Access, or A2, as his trendy, trendy name, and they work in South Asia. And really, for Oscar and his family, they had a series of questions that church planters asked new Christians before they were baptised. So these questions are for those who are just about uh, to be uh, baptised. I can't tell you the country because it's, if I did, apparently it, it would make it not safe. But the country is predominantly Hindu and over the past few decades Christianity has been growing, especially amongst uh, the poor people there. And these people, before they are baptised, are asked to these questions to see if they're ready to go through what, the, what Christianity really means. These are the questions you'd be asked if you're over there. So first is, are you willing to leave home and lose the blessing of your father? The second question is, are you willing to lose your job? Third question is, are you willing to go to the village where you come from and those who persecute you, forgive them and share the love of Christ with them? Fourthly, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? Fifthly, are you willing to be beaten rather than deny your faith? Sixth, are you willing to go to prison? Seven, are you willing to die for Jesus? Those aren't questions we have to ask over here if we're going to follow Jesus. I probably could only answer one of those. Number four, are you willing to give an offering to the Lord? These seven questions to us today are a reminder of the reality of following Jesus in so many places in the world. It demands everything. It's not about being part of some nice, well-behaved, well-mannered, well-educated club. 
It's not about nice feelings and Sunday worship with the most amazing songs which lift us closer to Jesus. It's not about brilliant sermons, although I doubt you'll hear one today, but it's about being a Christian is about so much more. And I find this, I need to tell you this because it's really helpful. It's really important to have this filter of persecutions in the back of our minds as it helps us to work out what is going on in the New Testament. Without that filter, any interpretation of the New Testament is going to be flawed because it's into that kind of world the first Christians were living and the Bible uh, was being communicated to them. And it's this world which Jesus is speaking into today because Jesus is preparing his disciples for this reality, is getting them ready. If you look at the first four verses of chapter 16, if you've got your Bibles open, your apps going, he says, all this I've told you so that you won't fall away. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, time's coming where anyone who kills you will think they're offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I've told you this so that when their time comes, you will remember I warned you about them. What's going on here? As Jesus speaks, what's what's happening? It seems that he's speaking prophetically. He's telling the disciples their reality if they stick uh, with him. You can obviously see in a room like this, tension is in the air. This is a hard thing to be speaking about. Pain is being felt. Confusion is what's happening in that room. All of a sudden, on this day, before Good Friday, death is in the air. Crucifixion is a possibility. Nobody apart from Jesus in this room is really understanding what's going on. But the body language of the disciples, the emotional temperature in this room means that anxiety is completely here this is not a happy room and Jesus you know you'd think he'd be quite nice and kind having done all that type of stuff but he doesn't make it any easier for them because he builds up the tension he tells his friends that things are going to actually get a lot harder and a lot riskier uh, because they followed him there's no easy life being communicated here. There's no straightforward solutions to being a follower of Jesus. And actually, no straightforward solutions are ever offered by Jesus. must say, my personal experience, a life with Jesus is much better in it uh, than without it. But it's never a gateway to an easy life if you follow Jesus. He wants to bless us abundantly But that blessing is very different to what we often imagine sitting here in Scotland. It goes much beyond the economic, the physical, and the emotion. The abundance which Jesus offers is entering into a dynamic where God totally is. The full revelation of God, if you like, enters our souls, and from that we become transformed. This is the new dynamic which Jesus offers, and he develops in these verses, Jean Varnier, who's an amazing Christian leader, says, to become a friend of Jesus is to become like him, to live as he lived. This can mean being rejected and hated as he was hated. We can then be birthed in God in a new way and live in the fulfillment of joy. And for Jesus, it is vital that he tells his friends it's going to be tough. He has to be honest with them. It's just about to live out this toughness. And he tells them that is going to be 
their life too. Varnier again says, by telling the disciples that they too will be persecuted, Jesus is revealing how they are called to become like him. So too, all those who are called to give their lives for Jesus, for truth and for justice, become like him. They too live the hour of Jesus. Their shed blood becomes one with the blood of the crucified Jesus. In and through the death of Jesus too, uh, they give life to the world. Their blood waters the arid land of our hearts to bring forth new life. And things get even tougher than this for the disciples. Jesus doesn't just tell them it's going to be hard for them. Persecution isn't just the thing he's going on about here. They're also going to have to face their future living without them. This person without him, this person they followed for three years, is going away. He's leaving and the feeling in the room is getting tougher and more anxious. But it doesn't end, thankfully, this reading at this tough and desolate point. He then begins to tell them about a new reality. When things are going to move on from the age of Jesus to the age of the Spirit. And in this moment, this is a significant moment for us as followers of Jesus sitting here today. He is building something very important. For the previous two chapters, he's been talking about the Holy Spirit. And now he fleshes it out a little more and creates this moment. Listen to him. He says, very truly, I tell you, it's for your good I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, the Holy Spirit in these verses is given a name here, the advocate. It's in this translation we're using today. Your translation might use word like the counsellor. And the Greek word translated the counsellor or the advocate doesn't have an exact equivalent in English. The Greek word is used is paraclete, which means one who draws alongside or um, Another person, so the one who's called alongside of another person to offer assistance. One who's called alongside another person to offer assistance. So, for example, uh, one I could think of is a paramedic. is someone who comes alongside a person and they offer medical assistance. A paraclete is someone who comes alongside somebody else and offers them help. And the word could be translated as this, counsellor, comforter. Sounds nice. Helper, supporter, advocate, good Scottish word there, ally and friend. This is the Holy Spirit and Jesus is pointing to him here. A dynamic person who can be part of everything in our lives. And look at the context into which the Holy Spirit is coming. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit in the context of defeat in these verses. Jesus is at his absolute weakest. The disciples in these moments are at their complete weakest. This is the place where the future looks the gloomiest. Hope is vanished. It's not there. And these are the moments on what Christianity is built on. Jesus is putting the moments 
future moments of Christianity into this place of complete weakness, complete vulnerability, brokenness, terribleness, hopelessness. It's awful. And this is where Jesus decides to do his work. The kingdom of God whispers its voice into these moments. And that's the thing. Deep inside the psyche of following Jesus is this whisper of God. I don't know if you know that whisper, that whisper of God, the calling of God, the hope of God. When things are dark, there is hope and there is a glimmer of light. The true paradox of following Jesus is is that when you are at your weakest, you're actually at your strongest. So Jesus in these moments is preparing his disciples for what appears to be a difficult future. But in these moments, he's actually preparing his people for God in all his fullness. John Stott, who many of us here have known and experienced his ministry and enjoyed his books, died a year or so ago. But he was a great Christian leader and he went to Australia and he had to uh, preach a sermon, but he was really poorly, very poorly indeed. And he said that I preached the worst sermon I've ever preached in those moments in front of thousands of people. It was completely embarrassing, completely terrible. Can you imagine it? It's just awful. He, he came to give his best and all he could do was give his worst and he couldn't get out, out of the place quick enough. But the thing is, he was an international speaker. He had to visit Australia time and time again. And every time he visited Australia, people would come up to him. He goes, you know, on that night when you preached that sermon, that is when my life changed. That is when I became a Christian. Of a John Stott, he discovered that it was when he was at his weakest and most vulnerable that things change. And that's my experience. When I felt at my weakest and most vulnerable, that's when God has turned up and brought transformation. Every dud sermon I've preached, and I've preached many, people have come and said, thank you, I've really needed that. Thank you. It's as if God was speaking to me. I'm thinking, really? But anyway, they have done. Every time I've preached that ridiculous prayer, preached, said that ridiculous prayer or prayed with somebody, thought, oh, that was just so, so awful. People have come up to me and said, thank you. That's, that, that was just what I needed. That, that changed the situation. It, I was able to see things in, in a new way. It's when we're at our lowest, often God is at the highest. I must admit, when it came to starting Soul Food, I'll be honest with you, I was ready to quit. I'd almost written my resignation to Dave, say, Dave, I can't cope anymore. I am going to quit. And yet, what a fool I'd have been if I'd quit that because it has been the most wonderful experience of my life, being part of that ministry where I've seen God move in the most profound ways. Out of weakness, God moves, and it is amazing. Those of us in a dark, complex, difficult place, remember, pray through, talk about it, think about it. It's when you're at your weakest that you are at your strongest. It might be this morning you need to respond to that because you've embraced the darkness and you no longer believe there's light. You've learned to live in that darkness and function in that darkness but you are missing out. You've entered into becoming a cynical person. And maybe God wants to shift that in you. Please remember the deep message of Jesus. Into your dark places, 
God's counsellor is found. Into your weakness, the Holy Spirit is present. Into the place it feels like failure, transformation is the reality. A light can be illuminated. Jesus then goes on to expand about what he means about this counsellor, this Holy Spirit, this advocate. And I must say, if you read verses 8 to 11, if you can come up with a sermon from them, I'll be impressed because I find them actually quite perplexing. I've got a wife sitting over there who says, I preach on this passage loads of times, so go and ask Jenny what they mean. Anyway, Carson, who's an expert on the book of John, says it's really hard to work out how to translate them. And uh, I've read the commentaries, and it is hard. And he says these verses are like a cryptic utterance. And big debates about, had about what these verses mean. And to be honest, I have not got a brain big enough or the language skills developed enough to really explain what's happening in these verses. But I do know this because something essential is happening in these verses. Something really important is being communicated. And actually, I think it's quite simple. Something which is exciting if we want to live this life with the counsellor at our side. In fact, I think it's something which is essential if we're to understand what the Holy Spirit does. I'm just going to leave you hanging there because I just want to talk about the Holy Spirit a bit more before I tell you about that something. Because the Holy Spirit is not about making us feel better. He's not like a personal trainer who walks alongside us and, and tries to uh, make us better. You know, you imagine those personal trainers saying, you're brilliant, you can do it. It's, it's not like that. He isn't some kind of guru who's going to change our, our, our lives around like that. He's not like some kind of consultant who gives us this gift of positive thinking to turn our lives around. He's not a lucky charm. You know, often I see people going around thinking the Holy Spirit's a lucky charm. If I can get in sync with him, I can do it and all this type of stuff. Because I say there's some important things to say here. Because I've been living in uh, Scotland for almost uh, four years now. And often I go into ministry situations or church situations. And the power of the Holy Spirit is spoken about. And, and it disturbs me because I think we're missing it as a nation, as, as a people of God. Because I passionately believe in the Holy Spirit. And I need to tell you, I believe in a personal Holy Spirit. I believe in a Holy Spirit who does bring transformation personally to our lives. I've experienced it myself. I believe in a Holy Spirit who helps with this whole healing uh, purposes of Jesus, who, who does bring big changes to our lives. I believe that the Holy Spirit has given each one of us who follow Jesus a gift, a unique gift, which will become our unique contribution to the church. I believe in prophecy. I believe in words of knowledge. I believe in tongues. I believe that it doesn't matter if somebody falls over, if they're prayed for in the Spirit. In fact, I believe that's a good thing going on. And I believe that the power of the Holy Spirit is the most wonderful thing. It changes things. My concern is that in Scotland, when I hear about the power of the Holy Spirit, it seems to have been linked in with two things. Firstly, with a personal obsession, a me, me, me obsession. Maybe it's not just Scotland. Maybe it's the West. I could talk about the West here, so I don't want to 
because it's always hard as an English person speaking Scotland, but, you know, all, all this type of stuff. It's, you know, it's as, it's as if people are just seeking that personal affirmation uh, the whole time. If you go to something like Clan, uh, the most popular thing there, which is a really good festival, one of the most popular things is signing up to go for a time of personal uh, prophecy, sort of a one-on-one prophecy time with a prophecy expert. I find that deeply worrying because it feels to me as though we're turning prophecy into some sort of fortune uh, telling personal sort of horoscope time. And the other thing I get concerned about is this on a bigger setting, which I think it is a Scottish thing, is about how the Holy Spirit wants to give Scotland a special blessing. God's got a really special blessing in store for Scotland. Every event I go to, that is said. The Holy Spirit wants to bless Scotland. It's like it's become like some sort of self-obsessional um, personal banter for Scotland. And you go to these meetings and it's said. And I must admit, I went four years ago, oh, that sounds nice, that's lovely. And I believe it. I, I must tell you, I believe that God wants to bless Scotland, but I think he wants to bless every single part of the world, not just Scotland. But I went to these meetings four years ago, I thought, this is great, I, lo- I love this. But I've been here four years And the blessing to me is decline, and the church looks as though it's going to die out in the next uh, few years. If you read the papers, I think we've got about six years left or something. It's terrible. Well, is that blessing? I don't see that as as blessing. I find it it incredible, this self-obsession towards blessing. And I think that's because we've taken the blessing as a passive thing. And I'm going to explain what Jesus really means by the Holy Spirit. Only 5% of people in Scotland will be in church today. I don't think that's a blessing. I think that's, that's terrible, if I'm honest with you, because Jesus is so wonderful. And only 5% of people are saying that today with their lives. We've made the Holy Spirit sort of some feel-good kind of God. And we go to these meetings, we end up feeling good about it, and we leave these meetings, and nothing ever happens. And I'll tell you what's going on. Quite simply, the Holy Spirit, as we see in these complex verses, has the most important thing to achieve through the church. Quite simply and importantly, these verses show us the work of the Holy Spirit. And he is, quite simply, about pointing people to Jesus. It's not about having that lovely emotion, as much as those are good and I've experienced them and I don't want to stop you having them, but that emotion is rubbish unless it turns outwards and starts pointing people to Jesus, starts pointing the world to Jesus. As you see in this verse, it's about convicting, about showing, about changing. They look at us, the world does, and it sees Jesus. That shine um, song we sang is the most theologically correct song we sang, because what we want to do is we want to shine out for Jesus, and we do that because we're filled with the Spirit, so that the world may see he lives in me, changes everything. You know, we sang all this other very lovely stuff, but that's the one which wins this morning. It's about saying, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, Jesus is here, he's deeply within us, and his transformational healing and life are as much of reality now as it was uh, back then. So we might face great difficulty, but in that difficulty, Jesus is not only present, 
but he is glorified. And the Holy Spirit isn't just some sort of message for our hearts. It would seem from these verses, it's a message for the whole wide world that Jesus is Lord. So the church in Scotland right now is weak, and that is brilliant. We are weak. Let's be proud of our weakness. It's no time, though, for self-obsession or comforting dreams, because we could be dead soon. It's time for Jesus. And we need to get back to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit in us will make that time for Jesus. But in fact, it's much bigger than that. These final verses, Jesus indicates to the disciples, if they let the Holy Spirit become part of their experience, if they discover his power in their life, the most wonderful thing happens is that it's not that you just get caught up in Jesus. You get caught up in the full reality of God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sort of collide in our lives, and we get caught up in this whole new dynamic Trinitarian place. It's as if uh, those disciples are released completely because Jesus' very presence walks with them. His inspiration, his power, his integrity, his love becomes center of things, but also the fullness of God is part of them. So our activity becomes enhanced in the most amazing way. The fullness of God becomes present. Jesus is here in this room. He's telling them, I'm going to leave soon. And it's terrible and it's weak and it's awful. But despite everything, the fullness, everything about God is going to be your reality too. I don't think the disciples really understood it back then, but that is what's happening. It means we as a Christian community, we as Christian individuals, have a huge resource and it's right in the centre of us, in the core of our beings, and we become released into this great relationship, the greatest relationship in history. We have a relationship with God, but we don't self-obsess about that relationship. We get given permission as we got it to take that relationship to all of those about us. Jean Vanier says, it's to our advantage that Jesus is no, no longer walks with us in a physical presence. He sends to each one of us who so wants it the new force of love which permits us to stand up and witness to the truth in the name of Jesus in the face of difficulties and persecution. This is the work of the paraclete, the, the spirit of truth, to reveal the truth and to bring light uh, and to light the evil ways and corruption of the world. The travesty of justice and fake condemnations. This is a cry of victory. Justice will prevail. Evil will not have the last word. Four years ago, I had literally just arrived back from Egypt. I went to visit the church there. It's a persecuted church. Only 10% of people there are Christians, and it's obvious they're Christians. Not only do they have the cross tattooed on their hands, on their, leaf, on their papers they have to carry around with them, it states their faith, and it says Christian. When 90% of the population are Muslim, the Christians get overlooked, and everyone knows they're Christians. You can't hide from it. It's a weak church, essentially, but that weak church is hugely effective. On the last day we were there, we went to a village and we saw this older woman, and she was called Mama. And Mama spoke to us, and she, she was a dynamic person. And she was a, a leader of the community, even though she wasn't the leader 
in the church. And she was an incredible woman. Because through her, and through her love, and through her tension, and through her just going the extra mile, family after family after family after family after family in that village have been transformed. She was a person full of the Holy Spirit. She wasn't educated. She didn't have the sort of formal stuff to say, this is the theological understanding you need of Jesus before you, you follow him. All she had with her was the Holy Spirit. She couldn't be educated. It wasn't there. It wasn't in the culture of the church. So the Holy Spirit through her drew people to Jesus through her life and her actions and transformed it in the face of adversity. She saw God move and transform a whole village. That same God is our God but I feel we're missing out on him because we forget that filter of persecution. She's not an example to us to move away from our self-obsession about the Holy Spirit. He's an example to us, I think, to stop being fearful of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's about equipping us and enabling us to reach out uh, with Jesus. Let's stop being afraid of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the most wonderful thing. It's God himself in us. Why be afraid of it? It's brilliant. In our weakness, if we're feeling weak, let's just say yes to him today. And let's enjoy being part of what he wants us to do. Let's not overthink it. Let's do it. And let's pray that all of us can be filled with his spirit so we're equipped to change and transform our worlds. The final thing I want to say is just... After Jesus had died and he'd risen again and he was having a chat with his disciples before he went off to heaven. In verse 22 of chapter 20 of John, um, he says this. And with that, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. All I can say is, Jesus today is still breathing on us. He's breathing on every single one of us. He's breathing into our church. He's breathing into the church in Scotland. And he's inviting us. He's saying, come on. Do what you need to do. Take part in my work. I can't do it without you, he's saying to us all. I breathe my Holy Spirit on you because I can't do it without you. So despite everything, all those things which hold us back, all those dark fins, all those sins, all those brokennesses, God knows about all of that and he still loves you. All those feelings of inadequacy, despite maybe our arrogance or overconfidence, despite our dodgy theology, in my word, I've got a lot of it, despite our fears, despite our anxieties, Jesus is breathing on us all this morning. He's saying, receive the Holy Spirit. And it's a whole lot more than you can think or imagine. It's a Holy Spirit which can change the world. God bless us all as we try and work it out.